Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. We're excited to be back after about a two-week hiatus where we were away with our staff for a conference, and then um, my family was away celebrating my wife's birthday out of state, and so uh, we took a couple weeks off, but we have not stopped working our way through the scriptures in six months, and so uh, today we are going to back up just a little bit and to talk about the books and your questions from First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. I am joined today by Bill Mayer, our Worship and Tech Director. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And special guest, Jonathan Nicholas, one of our mission partners, is here with us, too. Hey, guys. Jonathan and his wife, Tina, joined us on a previous episode and informed us about some uh, work we were doing to help relocate a pastor and his wife and their family from Tajikistan, Tajikistan, pronounce it correctly. And uh, they are here now here safely. Yes. Quite the journey. They are here and um, still in need of housing. So if anyone out there uh, has any housing available, we would... Uh, yeah, I'd love to have you get in touch with Jesse or someone here at the church and uh, let us know about it. Yep, that would be huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely the number one need. Everyone mm-hmm. needs a roof over their heads. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so uh, they're uh, they're sleeping in, inside in a temporary uh, structure. <laughs> yes. And so, uh, yeah, keeping keeping that at the top of our prayer list. And uh, if you're listening and you can help with that or you're moved to help with that, please do contact us, office at Join With Jesus or the landline 386-226-0052. And that would be for people who have housing in the central Volusia County area. Yes, correct. No out-of-state listeners. Yes. Gonna... <laughs> All right, well, let's jump in. So um, obviously, we've got an incredible amount of text to cover, and we're not trying to be exhaustive. Um, the point here is two things. I'd love to just talk a little bit about uh, the distinction and the differences between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and why they exist in the scriptures. Uh, if you don't know the answer to that and you read through in the six-month plan that we've been on, um, you would have felt like, man, I'm reading kind of a lot of reruns. And then also, why are these details included in one and not the other? And what happened here? And uh, and so on. There's also a lot of genealogies and lists of people and names and numbers. And um, so some people can get bogged down when they get into the Chronicles. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And then also, we've got just some super engaged um listeners and readers uh, who are part of our Christchurch family. And so we've got a number of super great questions that I'd love to talk about. And then, of course, um, any uh, feedback, topics of interest um, from our guests today. So I'm excited to jump in. So um, by way of overview, um, we have been reading through the scriptures um, front to back as they arrive to us in our uh, canon of scripture here in our Protestant Bibles with 66 books. And, um, but that is the arrangement that happens in the Old Testament is not chronological. So um, it's important to recognize, um, especially since the, most of what we've read has been chronological to date, but now we're getting into the middle section of the Old Testament where we begin to arrange the scriptures by theme and not necessarily in chronological order. So some of the questions we've got uh, have been to, to that end, like how do, I, how do I know where I'm at and where do I, where do I? And so part of the issue there is that First and Second Chronicles are a retelling of the kings of Judah in particular among the kings of both Israel and Judah, which are paralleled in first and second Kings. And that's what Chronicles is. Um, but it also goes back before that and also stretches out after that. 
And um, a lot of people don't realize this, but Chronicles would have been the last work written in the Old Testament. And so if you were to have taken all the books of the Old Testament and put them into order of when they were written, Chronicles would actually be the end. And this is why Chronicles ends with an abrupt ending um, about the proclamation of the return and the invitation of return to the Israelites. Um, in the same way, like Mark's gospel ends with an abrupt ending with everyone's, Jesus is resurrected, but everybody's afraid and no one has said anything. It's almost like a, uh, Mark's gospel was given as a way of introducing what has happened to the point of the mission of the church. And so it becomes kind of an evangelistic tool where the listener or the reader is left going, well, what happened next? And so Luke sets up his gospel in a similar format and then provides acts from an historical perspective. And this is what Chronicles is. Now, we have Chronicles placed after Kings because it's thematically connected to this period of Kings in the most um, substantial part of what it covers, um, but it's also doing other things. And so you will have noticed in First and Second Kings that we follow a uh, chronological um, retelling of the kings of the northern and southern kingdoms. So Israel is divided uh, after the death of Solomon and the ten northern tribes. Uh, which is the the bulk of the landmass, end up with a, a, a surrounding a different line of kings, not the Davidic kings, and they make as their capital city Samaria instead of Jerusalem. And Jeroboam, who is the one prophesied to have kind of led this northern tribes as their first king, he sets up uh, places of worship on the north end geographically and on the south end geographically to keep the Israelites of the ten tribes from traveling into the kingdom of Judah, which takes its name from the tribe that David comes from and is joined then by the tribes of Benjamin. And then Chronicles tells us the Levites from all of the northern towns made their way in as well. And so that's a detail that's omitted or not uh, emphasized in Kings. And so you end up with this two kingdoms and there's a bit of a civil war and there's some animosity there between these tribes and some wars break out. And so you get Asa of the southern tribe or the southern nation of Judah setting up garrisons against Israel. And so there's a, a line that's drawn there. And so this is kind of like the, the setting to what these books cover. Um, but while Kings seeks to give like an historical account of what's happening with the good and bad kings of Judah, and you'll notice that all the kings of Israel were bad kings who followed after Jeroboam, son of Naboth, and all of the errors that he made, it kind of details the decline and eventual judgment of the northern kingdoms. And then later we're going to read about the decline and the judgment of the southern kingdoms. But the emphasis on uh, the in First and Second Kings is really on the prophetic office, which is emerging during this period of time uh, in a way that Moses was a, a prophet of prophets, but the, the Old Testament gift of prophet and calling of prophet really starts to, to pop out. And so you get Elijah and Elisha and all of their stories, and they're actually prophesying to the northern kingdoms. And so they become prominent in the later chapters, um, first Kings and uh, early of second Kings. And so that's an element you're going to see. Now, if you back out of that and then you go over to Chronicles, again, we're focusing on Judah and the emphasis moves away from the prophetic office, although there's lots of prophets mentioned, and moves towards the priest class and the, um, the uh, influence of the priests on kind of keeping the way straight and keeping um, the heart right of the king and the way that the, the kings of Judah interacted with the priests. And so you see those features emerge. And part of the reason we get both of these books is we're telling some of the same historical data with overlap, but we're pointing out a, a very different perspective on what's happening and who those influencers were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that I kind of took away from, uh, you know, 
the Chronicles is that um, it was it was kind of more of a a retelling in a way that was like meant to give hope to Israel, right? Like right. to to project like, hey, you know, this story is not over. Just remember that there is a Messiah coming, and that there is one who is going to be established on His throne forever. Yes. And it was almost written not not necessarily to whitewash the the things that they had done wrong, but to say, hey, this is the focus. The focus is there is hope and don't give up on that hope. And there is one whose throne will be established forever. Right. Which is, which is, you get that when you read right? and you see that, that, that is prominently in the tribe of Judah and through the lineage of David. Mm -hmm. And there continues to be the movement of God to bring about that hope. Whereas first and second Kings are more justifying God's righteousness in the destruction of Israel and Judah because of their lack of faith and followership. And so this is not God giving up on his people. Mm-hmm. This is God's people getting most of what they deserve, but not all, right. <laughs> which is an important part of the story. But yes, then Chronicles comes back in at the tail end of the, the period of the exile and the return and the rebuilding of Israel, Jerusalem in particular, um, to provide hope for people, which the Israelites are going about to go into a 400-year period of silence. Mm-hmm. And so they really do need this hope. Right. <laughs> and so these are the scriptures that really carried the remnant of, of uh, the Israelites from the tribes who are still around at this point. And so that's uh, that's kind of like the overview. Um, I, it, it, I cannot overstate how helpful knowing that was for me the second time I read these at this pace. So last year mm-hmm. I mentioned early in the series, I read the Kings and then the Chronicles. And I really got bogged down in the Chronicles because I didn't understand the difference between these books and why Chronicles was written and why it was next to, to it. I'd always just read it with isolated stories then somewhere in some one book and somewhere in the other. And I was excited to get to those ones that I knew that were there, you know, mm-hmm. but re- when you're committed to reading chapter upon chapter upon chapter, day after day after day, I felt like, okay, I'm just, this is reruns. Um, but after, after doing a little bit of study and realizing how these two function, uh, you're just reading of the different lens mm-hmm. and it exactly. is one of hope. That's good. So let's get to some of your questions. Um, uh, this is a really interesting one. Um, there's a question about the, the number six, six, six. So, um, this is obviously one for, uh, people in our era who are fascinated with all things eschatology, largely because, uh, many of the Protestant denominations in the United States in the 21st century were born out of distinctions that formed over um, eschatological positions, eschatology, meaning study of the end things or last things. And this is about the end of the world. And so, um, when you think of the end of the world, immediately you think the book of revelation, the apocalypse of John. And then when you think of that, you think of the, uh, enigmas, uh, pictures, word pictures, numerology, all the ways that this kind of apocalyptic literature is comprised. And the most famous element of that, I think in pop culture is the number six, 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 which is uh, listed for us in uh, Revelation 13 and verse 18. And it's meant to be a riddle. It's literally spoken to say, like, let the reader understand. I'm telling you something here, and I'm purposely masking it. And so you have to be able to figure it out. And so this would have been something that John's readers would have had whatever deciphering code was necessary for this to make perfect sense and for its meaning to be completely communicated, but without other readers being able to understand what that is. Mm -hmm. It's very... It's interesting, but because a lot of people, even by the first or by the second century, didn't know what John's readers knew, they you get immediately, even in the patristics, the church fathers, disagreement about what that meant. Mm-hmm. And then as that disagreement continued throughout history, um, different 
eschatological perspectives began to interpret the book of Revelation differently and needed those parts to fit into their overarching interpretive method. And so you get lots and lots of various different ways that that's, that's seen. And then, of course, when you're reading and you have a fixation on this number 666, which is, it, I mean, it gets your attention. It's in there to get your attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start reading the Old Testament, and there's a handful of times where you see that number again. And so we had some of our um, followers asking, is this supposed to be a connection, and should we be making this connection? So my answer, this is my answer, and I'd love to hear what you guys think, is no. Total coincidence. <laughs> um, the, the number 666, like many numbers, is just a number in the Old Testament and there's lots of numbers, just tons and tons of random numbers, numbers of the weights of things, the numbers of things, the numbers of people. They're just t- boatloads of random numbers. Now, obviously, there's a connection here between First uh, Kings 10 and Second Chronicles 9 that talk about the gold that Solomon received annually as being 666 talents. Because in Revelation 13, the topic here is about the mark of the beast and commerce. And so you're like money. Mm-hmm and the beast and Solomon and 666. And so it's easy to put those things together. Um, But there's been, I've read probably dozens of people's ideas about what this number means and where these connections come from. And in my perspective, just in terms of what we've covered in Kings and Chronicles, there's zero connection between that and Revelation 13, 18. You guys Mm -hmm. disagree at all? Um, I mostly agree. I think that, I think that there are a lot of, uh, things in the old Testament that are meant to be a pattern for things in revelation that we see. But I think this is maybe probably most likely not one of them. And I think one of the reasons I say that too, is because, you know, the number six, 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 actually there's, if you look at the original text, there's actually six, one, six, right. It's some of the manuscripts. manuscripts. And so I I think it is a mystery and I think it will be a mystery until it's revealed. And then we're like, Oh, okay. Now we can figure out what that is. You know, it's one of those things where you look back and you're like, Oh, now it makes sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's one of those things where look, look at that cloud formation. It looks exactly like this. You know, we're kind of doing the same thing. We, we tend to do that a lot, I think. And, yep. and it's natural. It's completely natural. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that it's important not to get lost in numerology. All the clear things that God wants you to know in the Bible are very clear and repetitive. Yep. And yep. so like, there are some cool things like I'm thinking about the first thing that comes to mind is the tabernacle and how they camped in the wilderness and how it made the shape of the cross. Right. You map it out, but that was not totally essential. The gospel is still super clear. Yep. Throughout the whole rest of the text. So I would say that because it's so limited and not repetitive that we shouldn't focus on it as much as like, you know, oh, 12 tribes of Israel, three days in the grave, like, you know, mm-hmm. things that are thematically repeated over and over again. That's very good. Yeah. I think there, yeah, there are, there's a lot of numerology that's, that is actually prophetic, right? And Daniel, yeah. right? Where, where yeah. he, they actually said, Here, here's when the Messiah is going to be coming and yeah. they should have been expecting and they were expecting him, you know? And so there is a lot of numerology that's like that. And, or even when Jesus says 70 times seven is how many times you should forgive someone. Right. A Jew would understand, understood, would have understood that's referring to Daniel where it's like, Hey, 70 times 70 weeks, right? Seven times 70 weeks is how, how, how many years are for your people. And it's like, until I return, yes. forgive people, yes. you know? Yes. And so there's a lot of that numerology that is there. That's kind of important theologically, but I think this is just random. Not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> random. <laughs> so let's just talk about that for a second, yep. because it is important that we see where the biblical authors are actually using numbers and types because, and I was talking with my girls about this. Um, you can't really, you can't fully you can really, you can't fully understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's a little bit of a um, persuasive push in our generation, presently, currently in our culture, 
to like shy away from the Old Testament um, evangelistically because it's confusing and then to really just preach the New Testament. But the New Testament is predicated upon the Old Testament Mm -hmm. and the categories that we're working with don't make sense or can dangerously be unhinged from their original meaning Mm -hmm. to mean something that they don't mean when you don't keep these two things together. And have been. And have been, (laughs) yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So let's take um, the... 666 as an illustration. So the number six in the scriptures is a number that is connected to humanity. Mm -hmm. And so this is again and again and again and again. And so like even Daniel. So in Daniel, Mm -hmm. Daniel um, interprets this, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar and he sees these lay a statue that's so high and all these layers and what they stand for. And they're going to be these kingdoms. And this Mm -hmm. final kingdom has, Iron mixed with clay feet, and then this this uh, rock appears that's from the hand of God that destroys all this this uh, uh, statue and these kingdoms, and then begins to grow into a mountain. Mm-hmm. And so this is a beautiful picture of the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then Daniel goes right to saying, like, here's who you are in this, and here's what's going to happen after you. And and of course Nebuchadnezzar initially has a response to go, oh wow, the, you know the God, the great God in heaven. But then the very next chapter, he erects this statue to himself made entirely of the gold that he stands for and asks everybody to bow down to it. And so like, and what was the measurement of the statue? It was 60 cubits high by six cubits wide. That's not, that's not unintentional. It's not like uh, Daniel got a measuring tape out and stuck it on there and said, Oh, let me just include the scope, the scope of this thing. He's making a connection to this is an exponential expression of human pride and frailty. Yep. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then he refused to bow down to it, mm-hmm. as did his counterparts. And so this idea of six being tied to human humanity, human arrogance, and then that being expressed in three digits, six, 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 like is the next exponential version of that? Could mm-hmm. be. I don't know. Could be. Could be. Um, there's also in the kind of millennial camp, in the the realized millennial camp. This is non these are people who would read uh, revelation in either a partial preterist interpretation or an idealism that said this is trying to show us things that are general truths about reality and not trying to map out like a future that's going to be fulfilled by these particular mm-hmm. details. They would look at that and typically look at um, this as a, um, a numero grammatical code to put someone's name into a book without using the letters of their name. And so if you scope it out, you can take Nero Caesar or Nero Kaiser and put that in. If you actually actually have to do a little little trick here where you take the Greek and then you turn it into Hebrew by taking all of the vowels out. And when you do that, you end up with the, the number added together of all those letters, 666. Mm-hmm. And if you take the way that would have been written in Hebrew and you remove the last new from Neron Nero, then you get 616, and this to them explains the textual variant between 666 mm. and 616, and it keeps Nero at the center of this number, which allows them to date this book when it fits their motif and their interpretive method, and then justifies a lot of their um, uh, kind of uh, projection about the historicity mm. of the being fulfilled in the ancient Near East and the particularly in AD 70, and then the little bit that's left over for the future. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm sure you've heard that before. I have, yep. Um, not exactly sure that's the case, um, but could be, could be mm-hmm. <laughs> like with a lot of these things, yeah. could be, could be, you know, yeah. could be. <laughs> yeah. It also could just be, this is the kind of exponential picture of when the powers of darkness working with humanity 
set up a power structure that oppresses God's people, mm-hmm. which seems to be more likely the case uh, in my perspective. One thing that is interesting, though, I did do the, the math on the, the amount of gold that Solomon received. Yeah. That was, in today's dollars, like a, almost a billion and a half dollars. Yeah, annually. Annually. Yeah, we're talking I about mean, 24 tons crazy. of gold. Crazy. Tons. Yep. It's an insane And silver amount. was like dirt. Yeah, it says that. Actually, I pulled that <laughs> passage and put it in my notes because like, what is it? Uh, I thought I had it in here. Yeah, I was going to, if I didn't put it in here. But yeah, it basically says like nobody did anything with silver because it was so much silver was worthless. I <laughs> <laughs> can't even imagine. Uh, and the point there, obviously, in those texts is to help us to understand just how prosperous, mm-hmm. how much the blessing of God on God's chosen anointed right. king and when he was walking in faithfulness right. to God it's like, look what I will do for you. You mm-hmm. know, if you'll just walk with me mm-hmm. and it's like, nope. <laughs> yeah. Not going to do it. <laughs> not going to do it. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. Um, and of course, you know, you may read that and completely come to different conclusions and, uh, not like, like Bill said, it's not essential, uh, in, in biblical hermeneutics. That is, uh, the, the practice of interpreting the scriptures, which we're trained in, in seminary. Uh, we have something we're taught the analogy of faith where you take, clearer parts of scripture to interpret the less clear parts mm-hmm. of scripture and you don't turn that around. Mm-hmm. And so we don't end up taking little confusing verses and creating whole theologies about them. Uh, and people are prone to do that, especially when it justifies something they're already motivated to, to defend. Yeah. Good catch though. I mean, good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. that, you know, that stuck out to somebody yeah. in their reading. So, uh, let's see. So we got next question here. We've got, um, from first Kings 13, 20 and second Kings 17. And then again, in first Chronicles 11, there seems to be a lot of stories of lions, people being mauled by lions, uh, lions by a carcass. Uh, what's the motif of the lion? And, um, ought we to, um, see something into that? Interesting, huh? This is good. It's like the same theme as the last one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How's this connect? Well, obviously like we were mentioning, there are themes in scripture that ought to get our attention and the reference to a lion ought to get our attention all the way back from Genesis 49. Mm-hmm. Um, the prophecy from uh, Jacob to uh, Judah, the the lion's cub, and then the lion of the tribe of Judah and mm-hmm. that imagery all the way through uh, speaking of Jesus in Revelation. And so like, yep, that is a motif. Lion is definitely a motif. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we read the old Testament and there happens to be an actual physical lion, whether that's in the Samson story where, you know, Samson's strength is put on display as he kills a lion. And then of course his unfaithfulness as he eats honey out of a dead lion's body, which as <laughs> having taken the vow of a Nazarite, he should not have done, um, or should have ended in the vow, his vow. And he should have cut his hair and kept with, with number six. And, but he didn't do that. Um, so sometimes the lion's just a lion. But there are a lot of lions in uh, Kings. And so uh, what should we perceive about the presence of these lions? Now, I did a little uh, cursory reading. And uh, have you guys had any thoughts about that? I don't have many thoughts about that. Other than I, I, it does seem that uh, animals in general are being used uh, for some sort of judgment. You know, so. Yes. Mm-hmm. So here's the things that I perceived. And you guys can tell me what you think. Um there is a tension between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom because of the fall. Mm -hmm. So when God puts that back together, the lion will lay down with the lamb and kids play with poisonous snakes. Mm -hmm. These are images used in Isaiah and different places that help us to have a fuller picture of when God brings restoration, 
this animosity between the carnivorous animal kingdom and humanity is gone. Mm -hmm. And so that should speak to this. And that's just the reality, both in the scriptures, literarily, and then also in our age today. And so lions are terrifying and scary. Um, their roar can be heard for up to five miles. We don't have uh, lions in the state of Florida. We have one large predatory cat and it's pretty small and scared. Um, the bobcat, the Florida bobcat, but where in the parts of the world where these lions exist, they would be a, a, a big uh, threat to humanity. However, the way that they're used um, repeatedly throughout Kings would be uh, tied to uh, the prophet's role and the justification of prophets. So when we get to the Old Testament office of prophet, um, this would be somebody who is Im imbued with the spirit of God and speaks the word of God. And yet the, they're saying what is from God and that has to be weighed out. And so one of the motifs through uh, Kings was the presence of the false prophets who said whatever was popular, whatever the king wanted to hear, and usually did so in unison. And then there's usually an outlier, whether it was Micaiah or Benaniah or Elijah, who's the one who was saying, nope, that's not it. And so there's this tension in the text between um, what the people want to hear and what the many are willing to say versus what the the fearless prophet of God is going to say that's actually true. And then how is that going to be justified? And in many of these lion stories, the justification of the prophet was put on display through the use of a lion attack um, or something that involved a lion. Do you remember this? Same thing happened mm -hmm. with the bear, with the light, Alicia and the yep. bears or Elisha and the bears. Yep. So here's the, the man of God being defended or justified or vindicated by God through a wild animal. Don't tease the old men. Don't, don't even, don't even. Come on up, you old ball head. <laughs> so I think that, that seemed to be a connection um, for me, particularly in this story where, um, and I'm, I'm pulling from my memory, which probably isn't a smart thing. I should probably open the text, but uh, the prophet comes into Israel to prophesy. He's not going to stay. He's not going to eat. He's got to go back. And he's on his way back. And then another prophet lures him in. Hey, God told me you should come eat with me. And so you get one prophet doing mm -hmm. what God said, saying what God said, and another one not doing what God said mm -hmm. and tricking the other one. Well, the good guy ends up dying because he did the opposite of what God said. And then the bad prophet, the evil prophet, ends up understanding that that guy's what he said was true because he was killed by a lion. And of course, he's killed by a lion, but not eaten by a lion. And when they find his dead body, it's the lion is sitting next to the man's donkey, not eating the man's donkey. <laughs> right. And so you're getting this picture of like, this is divine judgment and divine justification for the message that this prophet took. Mm -hmm. Now, wouldn't it be better if your justification came from you being right and also alive? Right. <laughs> Which just, However God wants to do it, I guess. Yes. You know? <laughs> I'd rather be living. Uh, than dead on the side of the road. Um, but this is like a way in which God used uh, a wild animal attack to justify the truth of what he had revealed. Yep. Well, at least that guy took care of his body. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's, and then uh, bury me with that guy. He was right. <laughs> more righteous than me. Like, yes. Wow. And a, a lot of these stories too are meant to highlight the decline of the people of Israel and mm -hmm. the, the negative influence of the false gods. And so they're really drifting away. And the, you, and like part of the Old Testament story is like the Israelites are supposed to be the saviors. They're supposed to be the priests to the world. They're supposed mm -hmm. to be a light of the world, the, the sons of God. They're supposed to be the ones that reveal the character of God. Mm -hmm. But when the saviors need saving, things are bad. Yep. And so you're going to get this convoluted mix of, man, God's still working through these people because he's made these promises, and yet they continue to be faithless and to do evil. Yep. And so that's a feature of the Old Testament you got to kind of get comfortable with. I think it's also interesting because it really shows God's thought process, processes are so different than ours. 
You know what I mean? I mean, just so different, you know? Yeah. And I, I think a lot of times we, we tend to try and make God into our own idea of what the way he thinks maybe. And it's like, when you read this, you're like, man, he really does think differently than we do. Very, <laughs> very. Yep. yep. It's easy for us to put God in a box. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take a thing he said that matters to him or that he does most of the time. Um, but God is free to do whatever he wants. Right. Um, there are things he will not do. He will not lie. He will mm-hmm. not change, mm-hmm. but that does not mean you understand him completely. That's right. And as soon as you have a concept of God that he can't or won't do things he does, you're really in trouble. He'll fix it for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's good. Um, one of the repeated questions we got had to do with, and I'm moving on from lions here. Uh, one of the repeated questions we got had to do with the references throughout Kings and Chronicles of um, the other books. So at the, at the conclusion of a telling of a particular king... You'll see a phrase repeated that sometimes come in the form of a statement uh, or a question. Um, the other, you know, the other acts of this king are written in this book, or are not all the other acts of this king recorded for us in this book? And so a lot of people are like, where are these books? And mm-hmm. so first off, let, don't let that unsettle you, okay? Um, there have been there have been millions of volumes recorded and destroyed and lost to history throughout the generations. I mean, the burning of the library at Alexandria's case in point, all of the world's, it's essentially all of the world's uh, data would be like the internet breaking and being lost forever. Um, This type of destruction. And so very typical in the ancient near East to have works written and then lost. And so Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're Israel and you're invaded by the Babylonians, they just take what they want, burn the rest. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that these books don't exist is not a problem. In fact, it really ought to highlight for us the miracle that the old Testament exists and how powerfully it has been preserved and meticulously it has been reproduced so that it comes to us today in a way that is 99.9% 99.9% accurate and mm-hmm. all of the um, textual variants that we do have have very easy explanations mm-hmm. and we have access to all the versions of the manuscripts in the in in the way that they come to us and so it is a miracle that we are able to hold our bible in our hand mm-hmm. literally a miracle it really is and so um, don't feel like you're missing something or that there's things that you need to know that you don't god has preserved everything that we need to know um, but the, a lot of these books, most of them actually, sometimes there's books in the Bible that refer to each other. Um, but for the most part, um, these would be um, source books that the authors of Kings and, and Chronicles would have used in order to get the information. So they're basically their work cited. And they're also, this is important, they're choosing some stories and not others because they have an intent in their books. This is not just a book of historical events that are randomly, you know, like in, um, we just read uh, Esther today, if you're, if you're following us in real time. In fact, you're getting this recording one day late. So yesterday uh, we read Esther and there's that, uh, the scene in Esther uh, where Xerxes can't sleep. And so because he can't sleep, he gets a boring book out and has someone read to him. And just so happens, this is what Esther's all about, right? Just so happens that uh, the name of God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. And yet his providence is all over every move of everything that happens. And he inspires boldness in his people to do what's right, even if it costs them their life. Mm-hmm. But he's providentially working all the way through this. And so you get all these coincidences in Esther, which I love. But, you know, King Can't Sleep gets out the, the annals and they're just he's just listening to random stuff that's happened. And, of course, he comes across this plot to kill him and Mordecai who discovers it and uh, is never rewarded. Mm-hmm. You know, and so this plays into the Esther story. But all of these books would have been kept. But that is not what Kings are or Chronicles. These are books that were written um, for the purpose of leading God's people into the further revelation of God's work and to have that hope that ultimately leads to um, Messiah. 
And I think it also ultimately shows Israel, like, look, you asked for a king and look what's happened throughout history. You know, you've asked for one over and over and over again, a human king, and this is what you've gotten, yes. you know, yeah. like failure after failure after failure, you know? Yeah. And even your bright spots have dark spots. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And uh, it, so these, these books uh, contain stories that are um, pertinent to what you need to know about each of these kings and about the judgment of God that is justified and then his faithfulness to mm-hmm. his promise that's not in keeping with what Israel deserves. Mm-hmm. And so this is the conclusion that you should come to. And so don't let that hang you up. Yes, there were books that we do not have access to that the, um, the compilers or authors of Kings and Chronicles did have access to. Um, and that's okay. Uh, we got everything we need to know. And I think that the fact that these two um, books or four books, the way we have them, but these two books, the differences between them, what's omitted and included, um, shows the authorial intent that these are two different authors at two different periods of time who are taking the tam- same set of circumstances around many of the same characters, but they're including details that lead you to a, a, a uh, an outcome, lead you to a belief, lead you to a hope in Chronicles and a perspective in Kings. And so we got to recognize when we open the scriptures, who we are reading is trying to tell us something. And so we should read that way and we should read carefully that way. It's one of the reasons I love these questions because a lot of people see things that I skipped right over mm-hmm. and didn't, didn't connect with me. And then I go back and I go, wow, that's really incredible. In fact, I had this experience and this is really, this is like really gooey in the middle. This is real gooey. So <laughs> I haven't, I haven't even put this one back in the oven. Um, but this whole idea of six, six, six and this, um, the, the idea of six and three, had me thinking about the threes that are in revelation of the, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. And you get this picture, at least for me in the way that I find uh, the most cohesive way of reading revelation is not literal and linear the way our dispensational friends read it, but rather um, cyclical and symbolic. And so if you read revelation as a series of sevens with um, seven sets of the same story, which I'm going to, I'll take this apart in a longer version of the podcast. When we get to the end of the, Uh, binge the Bible series. Um, But if you read it this way, what you end up with is, is not a, um, a historical telling of the future. What you end up with is a sevenfold heavenly perspective on what has already happened in the position God's people are in. And what you see is that there's this theme really in every generation, which is why every generation has thought they were the last generation and interpreted revelation as though this is the end of the world. And these features prove it. Because there is um, this unholy union, this unholy trinity between the powers of darkness and the power structures in humanity, the beast, um, and the religious uh, traditions that align themselves while speaking for God with the purposes of the enemy and upholding the beast. And so there's always a religious component that is tied into what Satan is actually doing. And there's a false prophet that is the one who is kind of spewing this reality. And so I see things like 666. And then I start, you start thinking about um, even the passage this past Sunday. I think at least one service, I read the whole thing, um, but we were pressed for time from uh, Revelation 12, where there is, um, there's a, a telling of the prehistory of the fall of Satan. And then that fall is, is showing something about judgment. And then we get some passages like Isaiah 14 and others in Ezekiel. There's places where we get the name Lucifer, Daystar. Um, there's a lot we're not told. And some of that is carried through the Mishnah and the Talmud and the historic traditions of uh, the Jews. 
But in the scriptures themselves, there's not a solid prehistory of the fall of Satan and what was happening before God made the earth and before humanity. But you do see this motif of God appointing one to be his servant and elevating that servant. And again and again and again, that servant does not want to be humbled Mm -hmm. or to self-sacrifice for the purposes of God and instead seeks to elevate themselves by either holding on to the position God has given them or actually by usurping even the position of God. So Nebuchadnezzar does this. Uh, many of the evilest kings do this. I mean, every king that doesn't walk according to the ways of God does this very thing, and then they have a great fall. Mm-hmm. And so you continue to see this thing happen again and again, and it can kind of give you this picture of, well, maybe, maybe just maybe, God has been showing the need for a suffering servant from the time that history began Mm -hmm. and even prehistory. And he's put on display again and again and again, how they're every time you put anybody in that position, there's no one who's able to fulfill its purpose. And of course, and then you get into Isaiah 53 and God's suffering servant, actually it's at least 52 all the way through a few chapters beyond that. And there's this picture of like, wow, God's going to send one who is going to, who's who's not going to be treated with respect, admiration, worship, and honor, reverence, but is going to end up becoming the savior of all. Mm-hmm. And so there's a real clear picture of the gospel uh, that emerges. And a lot of these Old Testament stories have the same motif of I've raised you up and then this moment of pride and then this drastic fall. And so um, this happens obviously in Revelation 12 and it's, it's unclear whether this is a king of Babylon that's being referred to in Isaiah 14 or whether this is like a re- reference to Satan. But this idea that God is raising raising people up in as much as they are laying their lives down becomes a, a motif in Jesus teaching where he's saying, Hey, the first is going to be last. And the son of man came to seek and save, which is lost to to be a servant of all. Like, and so you get God himself fulfilling the purpose of, uh, the leader that the world needs and that every, every human leader and maybe even every heavenly leader is incapable of fulfilling. Yep. Still, still a lot of goo in the middle of that one, but it's been on my mind. In regards to um, the question about, you know, the books and kind of where are they, mm-hmm. what, what would you say about these books that were not included in the canon? Oh, good question. Yeah. yeah. So the <laughs> Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll notice if you were raised Catholic that there's a handful of books that are included in the Catholic canon that are not in the Protestant canon. And so you'll have uh, Wisdom, um, Tobit, I believe is in there. Um, but there's a lot of Apocryphal books. I've got a copy of the Apocrypha. Um, and then even like, I believe uh, Jude... Uh, references Enoch Mm -hmm. and which is one of the apocryphal books. So that brings about kind of a, the topic of how were the books we have chosen. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of um, heresy around that. And a lot of that comes um, from pop culture, you know, in the latest iteration would be like uh, Dan Brown's novels. Uh, Anything you've ever heard about Jesus being married to Mary of Magdala, Mm -hmm. Uh, all of these things. um, They're predicated upon the idea that the powers that be were trying to keep the truth from you. And they were using the scriptures merely to control you. And uh, the real truth that happened are in these gospels of Peter and Thomas and Mary. And if you knew what had happened there, then you'd really have the truth. And um, it's just, obviously those are um, there to create doubt and to sell books and movies. Um, The reality is pretty much exactly the opposite. So the, the people of God have always recognized the value of scripture as divine revelation. And when you read the scriptures in comparison to basically anything else, you can see that there is a, a substantive difference mm-hmm. in the voice and revelation of scripture versus non-scripture. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very clear. 
And so throughout the centuries, you know, whoever happened to be in charge in religious circles um, really revered the scriptures, protected them, uh, taught from them, preserved them. And this is why it's a big deal when the book of the law was found in, in Josiah's day, mm-hmm. which Pastor Rich preached about two weeks ago. And Josiah tore his clothes, his rich garments. He's going, oh, like, we're in trouble. And But here's God preserving his word, right? So all throughout history, um, the people of God have recognized the voice of God and have collected and held on to the words of God. And so um, you get to the Old Testament, to whether it's Chronicles or Malachi, the end, and the Jews are holding on to these scriptures. Now, they're also collecting new writings, and this is where a lot of the Apocrypha comes from in the intertestamental period, and they're great writings, and the, you know, the Maccabees and um, the Hasmonean dynasty, all the stuff that happened in the middle that we know about comes from these historical records, which are reliable. They were, that's when they were written, this is who they were written by. Um, but there's also, in the, um, in the intertestamental period and in the early church, um, it was not uncommon to write a literary work and to use the literary device of a false name. And so if you're writing and you're writing in a particular genre, you might take on the voice of, let's say, Peter, and you're going to mm-hmm. write fourth Peter, or fifth Peter or whatever, and you're going to write it as though you were Peter. And this was known by everyone. And this is called the pseudepigrapha, a false name. And so everyone knows you're writing this in a motif to make that that backloads a lot of things people already know this is like another movie company making a sequel to a movie they don't own the rights to but they're making it and it's based on all this other stuff that everybody knows you know and so like this is what the pseudepigrapha were and so we have a lot of these books uh, both from the intertestamental period and then the early church and then some of them were just just weird random stuff and this is why we actually have what we call the canon uh, we, we use that word, but canon, it comes from the Greek word f- for read or rule or measure. And it's when the early church fathers um, in Nicaea concluded that the list of the New Testament books, in addition to the already affirmed Old Testament books, and this happened not because they were trying to suppress the truth, but because Christian leaders were arising and calling what was known to be scripture and agreed to be scripture as not scripture. Mm-hmm. So you get to um, heretics like Origen, who basically said like these books are out and we're only gonna we're only gonna believe these books. And this is when the church collectively and the church fathers representatively stood up and said, well, hold on a second, like no, that's not okay. But there had not been any like formal um, decision on what was going to be essentially canonized or set as the measure of what was truly scripture. And so they set about to take as many of the lists from the first and second century that they had that referenced either by quotation or by actual list. And there are a number of them in the early Irenaeus lists, every book of the Bible as we have it as being um, of the new Testament. And, um, and then they set out with some criteria that we know who the author is. So it's not pseudepigrapha um, that it, that it claims to be divine scripture, divine revelation. um, And that it's attested by um, the, witnesses or uh, associates of, of witnesses from the first century. And if it doesn't pass that test, it's out. And in fact, the only reason we have the book of Hebrews is because they were willing to accept Pauline authorship, even though it's almost 100% clear that Paul did not write Hebrews. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about the literary style of Hebrews. There's no connection to Paul whatsoever. But if they hadn't assigned Pauline authorship to Hebrews in the third yeah. century, it would be out. And so they kind of were like, this is so obviously scripture that they snuck it in. And so you were actually far more in danger of losing actual divine revelation in the canonization process than you are of having things that are not true being compiled and forced upon you. Mm-hmm. And so if, if that if you've never heard that, it's because 
um, you haven't read the right people, I guess, and you've been taking your cues from Hollywood. But I just would, if you are familiar with the scriptures at all, if you've read the scriptures at all, go home and read a short book and from the New Testament. Read First John or read First Peter and then pick up a copy of the Gospel of Thomas and have a read and tell me what you think. Uh-huh. You know, there's passages that say, you know, women cannot be saved and so all women must become men in order to be accepted into the kingdom yes. of heaven. You're like, oh, that would really fly today actually in our culture. That would be, that'd be really popular. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a qualitative difference that any noob could read and go, oh yeah, this is definitely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, you're not missing out on anything. Great question. Yep. Would you add anything to that? No, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I, what I was thinking more along the lines of, of was, you know, if someone's like, well, you know, where is this book that's missing? And I go out looking for, you know, these missing books of the Bible and like, well, why aren't, why aren't these in the Bible? You mm-hmm. know, that, that type of line of questioning. So yeah, yeah they're, and they're great questions. Yeah. Uh, man, that was a lot to like just process in my brain right now. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the one thing I read a whole bunch of, uh, like doctorate essays last year about the authoritativeness and how they all like put it all together. But like, that was the one of the main, there was like two factors and one of them was authoritative. Like is the text authoritative? And that's how it fits in there. Like, so like gospel of Thomas and other, other Coptic writings. And they're like, okay, we need to solidify this and say, this is the word of God. But, uh, if, if I could chime in on the Apocrypha, I feel like the extra books are helpful to understand what happened at the time. Like I've read first Maccabees and they put this interesting, um, like spin Mm -hmm. on prophecy. Like what did they expect out of prophets? And that kind of revealed that to me, like their temple was desecrated and they said, well, let's just take this and put it outside until a prophet comes along and tells us what to do with it, how to make it clean again. So you kind of like can put yourself in their mind and like what they were thinking, but it's not the authoritative word of God. Right. Mm -hmm. So like can kind of help you decode what else is happening in that little more backstory. Yeah, like yep. you're like, oh, well, this is what they thought of prophets. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we'll, we'll wait till a prophet comes and yep. lets us know what the heart of God is and how to purify this thing to put right. it back into the temple. Yep. You also get some history that makes sense because a lot of the apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is a genre we are very disconnected from. Um, but it would be like trying to explain Marvel movies to the people in Little House on the Prairie. So, like, there's just not a connection. It's not a context to really mm-hmm. understand what it is you're reading. However, apocalyptic was something that developed from like the Babylonian period, like Daniel has some sections of apocalyptic, but then you get into Enoch and some of the other apocryphal books and they're carrying that apocalyptic tradition. And so that was very popular at the time of the writing of the revelation of John. And so those themes met an audience that really could understand them. But Mm -hmm. even like the, um, the abomination that causes desolation and the reference to those things in history in the intertestamental period. And during the time of the Maccabean revolt, like there's a lot of really important, uh, historical events that you need to understand in order for the books that are in the Bible to make sense. Um, and if you think, if you get spooky about it, then you get to, you know, Jude and Jude makes a reference to Enoch and Mm -hmm. tells us information that we wouldn't have known otherwise about Noah. And like, where, where's that information coming from? And, um, the, but there's not a grand conspiracy. In fact, there's a very rich and well-documented tradition of the preservation of scripture. And it's really, really, really profound. And yet the enemy is always trying to sow seeds of doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, on our retreat two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, um, the, my wife, Tiffany and Bill's wife, Jesse were sitting by the pool with the kids and uh, the pool guy came and he was obviously harassed slash oppressed 
uh, by the enemy. It was a very distinct darkness about him. And so Tiffany, who's insanely bold, just started a conversation with him about faith and a tattoo that he had. And if he knew that Christ died for him, there was something about shed blood on his arm. And she was like, oh, I know someone that shed his blood. And she <laughs> she started talking and he just started spewing kind of like anti-apologetic rhetoric about how untrustworthy the scriptures were. And it's all a big farce. And, you know, you have to be an idiot to believe that and all this kind of stuff. And but there's like there's so much um, data that's out there. And when I went to community college in the late nineties, I mean, in, just in a, some random literature class, they were telling us how the Bible has 5,000 grammatical errors in it and it's untrustworthy. And it's been translated so many times and copied so many times the real meanings have been lost. And most of what we know from the scriptures isn't true. And you know, this is the Jesus mm-hmm. seminar was all predicated on this, the Jesus you never knew and Bart Ehrman and these different, you know, higher critics and textual critics. And they just want to take everything apart as though it's like propaganda and, and whittle it down to something that we can know nothing about. I mean, that's really the whole goal of the whole entire thing. But the, the rich tradition of the, the scriptures preservation is like so simple, mm-hmm. and so powerful. Um, and there's such simple answers. Like for instance, there are thousands of textual variants, which are quickly called errors, but they're things like the use of a Y instead of an I in, in a name or, you know, a period being missing or in some, um, you know, in Koine Greek, you, if you had an, if you have an Yoda, an I essentially an English, I Yoda at the end of a word, you would move it down and stick it as a dot underneath of the previous letter. And so some styles have that and some don't, but every time this occurs, you call it a textual variant. And so if you have 300 copies of a letter and six of them have this variant. Well, now you have six variants, but what people don't realize is like, there are so many thousand copies of the scriptures available throughout history that we can compare to each other. That's where all those variants come from. Mm -hmm. But that actually attests to the reliability because the meaning hasn't changed at all. And so if you take the number of copies of the scriptures that we have from the very first and second century, and again, these are written on papyrus and papyrus did not last long. And so you're not going to get an original you know, people will say like, dude, no, we don't even have the originals. Mm-hmm. Of course not. They dissolved. <laughs> like that's why they copied them. So you could continue to have them. But the ones we have are so accurate um, that it should, I mean, establish your faith in the perspicuity of scripture. And so, yep. yeah, Bill. And uh, it's funny that we have like this double standard because the ancient texts like Homer and other people, we right. have like three copies of them and people have no problem with this. But like we have like an insane amount, like 1,500 copies of the Alexandrian text of the Bible with like 99.7% accuracy minus these little textual, textual variant. variants. Right. And they're like, oh, well, that, that makes that inaccurate. Like the, 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 there's like such a double standard for right. Or, or even something like the Quran, right? The Quran, it's interesting because supposedly they have the original, but they will not let anybody see it. And, but nobody complains about that. Wow. <laughs> it's completely hidden, you know? Wow. Yeah, but nobody complains about that. Interesting. So, yeah. I did not know that. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. So the, I mean, I love this stuff. This is like really, really dear to my heart and very important. And, um, this was already in place before 1948 in the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, mm-hmm. but, and a lot of like the latest round of attack on the scriptures as we have them came after the the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls because there's a lot of scrolls that we didn't didn't have we discovered like those um those early um pseudepigraphic gospels were in there and so that is where the the focus was on but like what a lot of people don't know is um the oldest copy of Isaiah that we had was from the 11th century AD 11th century AD so it was only 8 900 years old 
when the Dead Sea, Scroll, Dead sea Scrolls were found. But a copy was found from the second century BC. So we're talking 1300 years older than the oldest one we have. And when they put the two of them side by side, they were 99.5% accurate. That's crazy. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And like that alone, you should go, what in the world are we talking about? And that was still, I mean, that's the second century BC. It was likely written in the fifth century BC. So it's still 300 years older than the original, but like you see how they, well, they've been preserved, mm -hmm. but that's not where the emphasis falls. It's not to establish the faith of the believing. It's to insert doubt because, you know, most of the information you're getting is from the purveyors of misinformation. So not much has changed. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we spent a lot of time in that little excursus. Uh, let's move through a few more of these things. Um, I got... Just a couple questions here. Second um, Kings four thirty eight to forty one. This is the one of the miracles of Elisha or Elisha, the the um, the prophet after Elijah's understudy. And this is where there's a famine, and they go out to collect wild gourds and get a shirt full of wild gourds, and they make uh, soup for everybody. And there's a, a slightly enigmatic phrase about there being death in the pot, which is sometimes referenced as bitterness or harm. Um, I don't know a lot of Hebrew, but it looked like death to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, Elisha adds flour, and then they were able to eat the soup. And so, and that's it. That just moves that's right it. on. <laughs> and so, like, people are asking what's going on there. And, of course, uh, this brings up the, the, the naturalistic, relativistic, humanistic, evolutionary biology mind that wants to have an answer for everything that is non-miraculous. Mm -hmm. And so some people will go, oh, well, there are... You know, there's um, properties in flour that actually reduce this acidic content or this whatever. And you go, this is like a thing he did he wouldn't have known to do. But when he did it, it made everything better and that established him as a prophet. And that's some kind of naturalistic explanation. Um, or God did a miracle um, by telling the prophet to do a random thing that had nothing to do with anything. And then it worked. Mm -hmm. um, or what if what if he God knew the answer and it was like because he had designed the flower and the death in the pot which I just looked at actually legitimately says death in the pot um and he knew but um who's our guy Elisha did Elisha, yeah and so and he said hey why don't you throw this in there because I God know what's going to happen mm -hmm. you can just do it in faith right and I'll fix all of your problems right and if you're a mother of small children, you may think, are the prophets just picky eaters? <laughs> are they just overstating? This smells so bad, you know, and just needs ketchup. I don't know. Uh, the point here in that story is actually establishing the double portion of Elisha's mantle, Elisha's mantle as the replacement of Elijah. That was mm -hmm. the thing that Elisha asked for and was told that if you see me taken up into heaven, then you'll receive. And then of course the mantle, the cloak of Elijah falls to Elisha. And then if you read the scriptures carefully, what you'll recognize is that Elisha performs twice as many miracles as Elijah, less one. And then you get the random story about the raiders and the funeral procession and the body that falls on the bones of Elisha and then is instantly restored to life and thus filling out the complete doubling of the miracles post-death, which is a beautiful picture of the power of resurrection mm -hmm. and the prophet in a tomb and his power from the tomb to bring life to the dead. I don't know if you guys are noticing any of that stuff. Yeah. And so th these may have just been a list of like purposefully random um, but numerologically significant miracles performed by Elisha so that you can see the doubling in the literary text. Yeah, it seems like God is kind of establishing him as his man, right. you know? I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. This might be like kind of trivial, but I wonder if Elisha was counting 
And he was like, man, I didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a failure. <laughs> Did I lose count? I didn't get a whole double portion. Uh-huh. I was like, just wait, watch. And I have read, um, I have read, um, that there was a seven in 14. Uh, there was seven like major miracles done by Elijah and then 14 done by Elisha. Mm. But I've also seen lists of 14 and 28, depending on if you add in the like prophetic proclamations or predictions that came true. So mm. there was actually seven miracles and seven prophetic proclamations followed by 14 miracles and 14 prophetic proclamations, less the one that happens after his death, which is included in somewhat in passing, but mm-hmm. it's there to punctuate the fulfillment of the role of yeah, God says, I didn't forget. I didn't forget. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Did this one on purpose, <laughs> but good question. Um, couple of quick questions. Second Kings four forty-two to 44. Um, this is the, the breaking of bread, another miracle. Uh, there's 20, we have 20 loaves of bread and we have a hundred people. How are we, how's this going to happen? And then the bread is multiplied and there's leftovers. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And so again, you get to that exponential, uh, justification. So if you have ever read the story of the five loaves and the two fish and the 12 baskets of leftovers, and you didn't read that in the setting of the prophets of Israel and mm-hmm. the miraculous multiplication of bread, let alone, we're not talking about a hundred people. We're talking about 5,000 men and their associated wives, children. We're not talking about 20 loaves. We're talking about five. We're not talking about a little bit of leftovers. We're talking about a basket for every apostle. Like, yes. Someone yep. said, was this supposed to, was this supposed to clue us in to the feeding the 5,000? 100% yes. Yes, yes I agree. <laughs> and yeah. if you're reading that backwards, if you're a New Testament Christian who is very familiar with the Jesus story, and then you read it in the Old Testament, you go, oh, this sounds familiar. <laughs> you're actually having the backward experience that the yes. gospel writers intended for you to have if you are a well-versed uh, ancient Near Eastern Jew. Yeah, it's like the idea of uh, God establishing Jesus as the greater David, right? The greater, yes. the greater even Moses eventually, the greater like Elijah, like he's doing all these things to establish his prophets mm-hmm. or his son, you know, mm-hmm. like it's like, yeah, I did it for them in a little bit in the past, but now watch what I do for my son here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's super cool. It's interesting too, when you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, when Peter and James and John observe a glorified Jesus accompanied by a glorified Moses and Elijah. Mm -hmm. And there's two things there that are super interesting to me. Um, The first is the, the the kind of two witnesses and maybe even the two witnesses in revelation Mm -hmm. is obviously we're back in revelation, but um, (laughs) would a lot of early Christian scholars would have seen the two witnesses as the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. And Jesus mentions attesting to himself again and again and again, the law and the prophets. Yep. And Moses is typically associated with the law, mm-hmm. and Elijah is the prominent Prophets. prophet, and mm-hmm. the one who's expected to return, who ultimately does in the in the form of John the baptizer. Mm-hmm. And so, when this triad of humans is presented in glorified um, condition on the Mount of Transfiguration, where's the David figure? Because you get the prophet role, the priest role. Remember, Moses was said King. a prophet, but he also was a priest. He's he's mm-hmm. a Levite. His brother, Aaron, was the high priest, right? So he's in this this Levitical line. So you get prophet, priest, and who's the king? Jesus is the king. That's right. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's and amazing. A lot of times we don't think about those things. <laughs> and obviously they're separated over hundreds of years, but they're the, the culmination of of uh, what God is doing. And that was, I think that was the what was meant to be mm-hmm. shown to. That's why Peter says, this is awesome. Let's just hang out Let's here. Let's hang out. Yeah, you know. <laughs> So good. Um, Second Kings 12, 6 to 16. This is a story about 
um, the king telling the priest to fix up the temple and they collect money for years and then they don't use it to fix up the temple. And so he has a box made and everybody puts their money in the box and then they take the money out of the box and they pay the contractors to do the work. And somebody asked the question, is this where uh, giving tithing to the church for purposes of paying those who work at the church slash temple comes from? Is this a correct interpretation or is this just stating history? Um, so I would say no to the first question. Um, there is a long tradition in uh, Christianity today of associating a minimum standard of giving for Christians with the tithe of the Old Testament. And in my opinion, that is a misinterpretation of the tithe. I think there's a much larger um, narrative being pushed with the concept of the tithe that is very Christological um, and that is meant to be influential for us in terms of our giving, which I believe giving for the Christian is mandated clearly by Scripture throughout mm -hmm. the epistles and other places, and even Jesus talking about giving alms and being generous and standing by the offering box. Like the fact that we would be generous and also contribute to the needs of the saints and the purposes of God at our local church, totally justifiable. The tithe as the standard of that is taught um, very prominently by many, 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 many Christians, but doesn't really stand up to any type of interpretive method. In fact, it becomes really the only place that you can find a scriptural justification for tithing in the New Testament would be 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 14 that says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul's saying, like, we're doing a work that's a spiritual benefit to you. It only makes sense that we would be compensated for doing that work. This is like a real important job, and it's a job, and we need to do it. Verse 12 says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So he's saying, we're traveling apostles, we're doing this thing, and we have a justification for being compensated. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. So Paul's saying, yeah, we, we could take money for this, but we're not going to because we're not trying to impugn your perception of our motives. Verse 13 says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, here's the connection to the Old Testament, get their food from the temple. And this was still happening at the time. This mm -hmm. is before the destruction of the temple. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection here. Um, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so that phrase, in the same way, is the, is the all has to hold all of the weight of the tithe being the way in which Christian ministers and missionaries and church workers are supported. Mm -hmm. And this would be the only connection between the Old Testament tithe and the New Testament work of, of the gospel. And so if you're comfortable putting all of the weight on that phrase then you can teach that the tithe for Christians is a biblical minimum standard of giving. Mm -hmm. um, I do not feel like that can bear the weight mm -hmm. personally. And I feel like it actually misunderstands the point of a tithe. A tithe is actually a starts with Abraham tithing to Melchizedek from the spoils of war in a one-time offering to show the reverence he had towards this enigmatic figure of the Old Testament who was a bridge between heaven and earth as a high priest whose origins we do not know. And so there is there is an, uh, an acknowledgement of this is God's man, God's work in the earth. And so I'm going to show honor through this particular act of giving. The tithe is then picked up after the Jacob's revelation in Jacob's ladder when God says he's going to bless Jacob. And then Jacob seeks to manipulate God's blessing by promising a tithe. 
you'll remember Jacob is the one who's always trying to take hold of control mm-hmm. of everything. And so he's, he's wrestling with God. He's trying to make God do what God has already promised. And he promises the tithe. And then, of course, the tithe is established in the Mosaic law uh, through Leviticus and the way that uh, the, the nation of Israel would have essentially its tax and religious uh, purposes fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And so the tithe itself is actually not one tithe. There's actually five distinct tithes. You can read about all of them. Not, they're not all annual. Some of them are every third year, every seventh year. But in an average over seven years, an Israelite would contribute about 22.5% of their yield back to the temple for the purposes of God, which included the support of the Levites, the high priests, the temple workers, and uh, the widows and orphans and anybody foreigners passing through. So there was always food in God's house. You could always come to the temple and, and eat for free. And then a lot of that tithe was also enjoyed um, through the festivals uh, annually and as you follow the four, the four festivals throughout the year and then Jubilee. And so you would spend a lot of that giving on yourself and you would eat it and you would party for days and you would not work. And so um, it was a very different setup than we have now. Right. Um, the point of the tithe that I think connects is that a 10% is a significant enough portion that it requires faith. Um, there's a lot you could do with 10% of your income. Mm-hmm. And so this is a way of honoring God in a way that positions you to need him. And uh, it's also um, commensurate with your income level. And so there's a stewardship, there's a faithfulness, there's an opportunity to trust God because as much as he's given to you, you are now giving a portion, an equal portion back to him. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of the point that we're meant to take from the tithe. And so um, for Tiffany and I, we've always had the tithe as like a minimum standard of giving just out of conviction. Um, but it's not because we feel like that's what we're supposed to do. Yep. So instead of the tithe becoming the minimum standard of giving for the Christian, uh, actually that, that forms a ceiling because if you're tithing, then you're fulfilling what God's called you to give. That's all I have to do. That's all it. I do that. And most people don't, most people who believe that actually give three to 5% of their income, Mm. they attempt to tithe and then they fail to do so. And so when the tithe is your ceiling, you rarely hit it. Um, but if you make the tithe, your floor, and you say, I'm going to give starting here and I'm going to see everything that God's given to me as from him and he can do whatever he wants with it. And I'm going to seek year over year to be more generous than I've ever been before. Then you actually end up giving substantially more than a tithe uh, annually. And um, that's what Tiffany and I've done now for 21 years. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you don't see you don't see Paul actually asking the Gentile church to give a tithe and then he goes and gives it to the temple. Right. Nope. <laughs> so you don't see that. It's more like, hey, give because these brothers need help over here. You know, and it's it's more just like as there was need, you would give like that was just a normal part of the process for the New Testament believers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and as Gentiles here, we, we aren't even a part of that system. Right. We're not a part of the Jewish laws that God gave to the Jews to his people with the temple system and all that. So, yeah, yeah it's quite it's quite different now. Yep. And I think one of the main things to touch on, not if you're dancing around, how much do I give is like the, the fact is that the tithe is the first fruits all throughout the scripture. You see, I give God the tithe first and then live off the rest, whatever mm-hmm. your percentage may be. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just like, it's interesting to me that we're like, we live in a consumer society and it's really like, how much can I keep for me? Like, mm-hmm. how much do I need to go? It's just like, why don't you just try to fulfill the law while you're at it? Yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm under grace. Who I'm... is my neighbor? Yeah. It's the kind of <laughs> yeah. question you're yeah. asking, isn't it? It's a self-justifying yeah, question. Right. Yeah. What must I do to be faithful to God? Mm-hmm. Tell me the number and I will do that. No, that's not <laughs> how this works. How about honor God with everything, every bit of your life and be willing to give up everything for him. Whatever he tells you to do, do, and then seek to be as proactively 
um, generous, obedient, wor- worshiping, submitted, yielded, obedient to God as you possibly can be. And, um, and that is the, that is the picture. There is also, isn't enough, um, correlation in the new Testament, like you mentioned between the kind of giving that took place and the kind of giving that we do now. Mm-hmm. So, um, in second Corinthians eight and nine, you know, the Macedonians or the Corinthians, they were contributing to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul's even saying like the day's going to come when you're going to be the one in need. Mm-hmm. And so like, let's do this for each other now. And someday you're the giver and someday you're the receiver. Yep. But let's remember the starting point is that Christ Jesus, let's remember his riches and how he became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich. And he puts the gospel in monetary terms. That's right. And this ought to be what really influences um, our giving. And so, uh, no, the answer is, I don't think that that box had anything to do with the way that we ought to collect uh, money. It just had to do with the fact that in Second Kings, the priests were being unfaithful with the money that was coming in and not fulfilling what the king had said to do. And so the king took matters into his own hands and made that happen. And this kind of taps into a theme that you saw in Kings where... When the people were unfaithful, the first group of people to suffer were the priests. And so um, it, uh, you'll see in Chronicles, which puts an emphasis on the good the priests brought, that you're not going to get their failures. So that story uh, isn't repeated. Um, and instead, you get the positive influence that the priest class brought to the kings uh, of Judah. Um, but the picture here was unfaithful people, unfaithful priests, temples falling down. Mm-hmm. Can I also add that like this is an offering in verse four, he says, which any man's heart prompts him to bring to the house of the Lord. So this is like over and Free above will. your mm-hmm. tithe. Yep. This is like, Oh God told me I need to give a hundred dollars to fix the house of the Lord. So I'm going to put it in the box yep. as an mm-hmm. extra yep. thing. Yep. Yep. So this is, and this is like what you get in most churches. You're going to hear, um, you're going to have the little money sermon between the, between the offering and the sermon. And they're going to use the phrase tithes and offerings with the presupposition that you're giving 10% of your income plus a little extra for a little something else. And um, that is kind of like the common assumption. So we don't use that terminology. Um, we, we do mention like we are committed to this practice of tithing as a church because we believe in generosity. And so we have not as the minimum requirement, but as the minimum standard of giving to start. And so we give 10% away of every dollar that's given to Christ Church. 10% goes to our global mission, our local mission. Um, and we always seek to push that annually to be as high as we've as we can. And we typically hit 17, 18% of our uh, annual income goes out from Christchurch, and that's a great way for people in their personal finances too. What I will tell you, and you'll hear this, you'll hear this testimony a lot from people who started tithing when they didn't believe in tithing, even in impossible situations where they went, you know what, I heard this teaching on tithing and I did it. But just because you believed a person and you did a thing toward God doesn't mean that even though I'm telling you you're maybe wrong, that God doesn't honor your faith. And mm-hmm. so when you start being generous towards God's purposes and He sees that you're a a a faithful person who's can be entrusted with wealth and will use that in a way that honors him. He absolutely gives you more because that's mm-hmm. who he's looking to use. Um, so I'm not saying that to, to give you like a motive to give to get, but all the time you will hear stories of people going, I never gave anything or I gave minimally. And then I came under this conviction and I started giving. And when I did the heavens opened up and I've never been in, in need ever again, you know? Yep. And um, that's because God's awesome yeah, and generous totally. and has control and he's looking for faithful people. Yeah, the difference between a lake and a river, right? Yep. Like, how much can a lake hold? This much. Yep. You know, and a river just keeps going. Keeps on yep. flowing. Yeah. Yep. And you've, I've heard the same analogy, too, with mm-hmm. the, you know, fit, grab grab a fistful of rice and hold it as tight as you can. Uh-huh. Now, open your <laughs> hands up, and if I, you know, pour pour the rice in, how much more can you hold right. with open hands than right. with closed fist? And, and those things are just true. That's just mm-hmm. the way that God's designed this world to work, yep. and uh, it's worth consideration. Great question. 
Um, what would an Asherah pole have looked like? You can Google an image. So um, Asherah or the Asherim, these uh, were fertility goddesses. So they would have been like probably sexually provocative um, women figures who would have been carved out of a single tree. So it would have been a pole, but it would have been a statue, I think. Um, usually accents on reproductive organs, which the womb would have been like the tummy. This is why historically it was a, a really attractive feature to have a little tummy on you if you're a woman. That's We've lost that in our culture. Um, and you'll see different types of fertility idols throughout history in many cultures that have like um, kind of like exaggerated um, sexual features and they would have bowed down to them and worshiped them for the purpose of fertility, usually rain and fruitfulness and so on. Um, but you can Google a picture of what that looked like. Um, oh, this is a good one. Uh, and how much time do we have left? Five minutes. Okay, let's go for five more minutes. And let's talk about the uh, the role of Samaritans. So this is a great question. Second Kings 17, Rebecca asks, um, would this story be the start of dissension between Israel slash the Jews and the Samaritans? And the answer is yes, this is it. You found it. Second Kings 17. So this is during the, uh, the exile, the Assyrian exile of the northern nation of Israel, distinct from Judah in the south. And all of these uh, Jews were killed and many of the prominent ones carried off. And this is, this is a, a common facet of empire in the ancient Near East and across the world. Uh, you, you kill everybody and you take the best of what they have and you leave their land desolate and then you repopulate it with people from another place. And that's what happened. And so Second um, Kings 17 tells the story of um, these um, Assyrians being brought back to Samaria to inhabit that land because we want people who are honoring the king to live there. And they um, they experience all kinds of travail and they ask, they're, they're saying the God of this area is against us. And so the king sends the Levites back to instruct them in how to worship God. And so they essentially become non-Jewish Jews who are not following the law perfectly, but who now have this historic tradition of being uh, recipients of God's revelation. But they're like not in any way seen as part of God's chosen people by the Jews of the first century. And this is the type of woman who Jesus was talking to in John chapter four, mm -hmm. a Samaritan woman who's asking questions that she should have known the answers to, but she doesn't because the revelation that she received was partial. And so this is where the the worship question about, do we worship on this mountain or over there at the temple? You know, and you answer my tough question and this is how I'll know if you're a prophet or not. That's where that whole story comes mm -hmm. from. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, one thing that I noticed in Second uh, Kings 17 was that um, it said that they feared God yeah. and they feared other gods. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like, man, do we do that mm -hmm. in our culture? Mm -hmm. We fear God and... Fear. We fear the God of culture. We fear the God of what people think or, yep. you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel, yeah, there's a very much a parallel of what we do today in our, and probably all throughout history, I imagine, you know? Um, yeah. But it was interesting. They feared other gods. What did they fear about those other gods? Yeah. I mean, something was happening back then, I believe demonically, you yep. know, that they, they were afraid as well, you know? Yep. And this, I mean, this brings up a, a an issue that a lot of people in our, again, in our kind of relativistic, humanistic, naturalistic society don't understand or disagree with or don't believe in, but the scriptures speak about there being essentially spirits, mm -hmm. divine, uh, partially like uh, angelic, let's call them, or heavenly, like they're other, they're not human, they're otherworldly, they're invisible in, in, in a realm 
that we cannot perceive physically with our eyes, but they are territorial in the sense that they hover over a particular area and they influence the mm -hmm. people of that area and they have some amount of control over what takes place there and they can terrorize humans and lead people astray. Mm -hmm. And so like there are spirits, the, the, the powers of the air, the principalities uh, all over the globe and um, people are ancient Near Eastern counterparts, especially, or um, they perceive that they were very religious people and they perceive that there's things going on outside of our control. Mm -hmm. And so we look back and we go, oh, well, they just were dumb and they didn't <laughs> yeah. understand science. And so they were religious and spooked out over stuff that there's obvious just explanations for. Ah, wrong answer. Mm -hmm. This same world we, they lived in, we live in. Yep. And there aren't answers for the things. And in fact, it's kind of silly and maybe dumb. I don't mean to be insulting to you if you think this way. But you are using, if you think this way, you are using a definition of science as that which can be seen, tasted, touched, weighed, smelled, empirically um, evaluated with reason as the method by which you evaluate all things, including things that cannot be seen, tasted, touched, smelled, or weighed with reason. And so like you, what you are claiming to be the rubric by which you test reality can't even test the reality of the thing we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You understand? Yep. You may be serving the science God. Yes. Oh yeah, that is. I mean, that's, yep. it's really, I mean, it's, it's an ideology that puts all the emphasis on the brilliance of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. It's actually a, you're the God of the yourself. You become the judge of God, the judge of the scripture, the judge of the world. And then your priest class become scientists, which is why, you know, the leftists, particularly in this age, like it's all about the science, follow the science, do it. The science, this is why there's climate alarmism and, and what are we doing? But, uh, overreacting to potentially something we have no understanding of because the science tells us that we're destroying the world. And now mm -hmm. we are essentially using Tesla's to appease the God of the science to keep the climate from falling apart. Do you see how religious this is? Mm -hmm. It's nonsensical. And, and when there's this type of rash uh, response, it's telling you that you're tapping into a religiosity and a faith that's based in fear and not in, in actual science. So even right. people's science isn't scientific. Right. Not even to mention that scientists are getting their research funded to produce specific answers. Right. By the beast. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yes, these, um, these transplants recognize that there is a force of judgment upon us and we don't know it, so we don't know how to appease it. Mm -hmm. And so they bring in the right. We'll the fear teachers. God, and we'll fear these guys too, yeah. and we'll do both. And we'll do both. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's what they did. I mean, that and that is the essence of the high places throughout mm -hmm. Israel, which we talked about on Sunday, and one at least one of those services that um, Jehoshaphat was the first king to tear down the high places. And this was just a high place was just a place where you could worship, and you could be going there as a faithful Jew to worship Yahweh and to bring your sacrifice. But it wasn't in the temple, and it wasn't under the oversight of the priests, and it wasn't in the way that God had decided. Yep. And when you are free to worship God how you want, typically it's not long before you start worshiping who you want, mm -hmm. not just how you want. Right. And this is where the people of God were led astray. And so while it was very unpopular, Jehoshaphat destroyed the high places so that the Israelites had to go where God told them to worship how God told them, mm -hmm. so that they maintained their worship of who God told them. Yep. And so this is super important for us. And, but we are, um, as a culture, like very, uh, we are not as monotheistic as we think we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that there's such an application to what we just said as like, so important for us to come back to the source and say, God, how did you prescribe worship? How do you want to be worshiped? And we walk in those things and not our own ideas because, you know, just like you said, we'll be led astray. And just as we've seen over and over again, one generation later, everybody's like off the train. Nehemiah and Ezra 
he he came back, established everything, left, came back, everything was in shambles already. Yep. You know, so it's just like we need to, and then you know, on the same in the same books, even from Ezra and Nehemiah, when they read the book, everybody was like, "Oh, what are we doing?" Yeah. You know, we we haven't been doing any of this, and everybody was just distraught over the fact that they weren't worshiping God how He had prescribed right. worship. Yep. And God's not been unclear. No. But the, again, the motif is we have an unfaithful people who are incapable of doing what God has prescribed and who need a transformation of the heart and not just a revelation of the mind. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus comes to be that, to be the atoning sacrifice, to be the cleansing mediator and to give us the new heart that we need by filling us with the spirit of God that leads us in a way that is needs no law, right? This is, this is Galatians 5, like against these, the fruit of the spirit, there's no law against these things. And so he's going to write that law in our hearts by replacing it with a higher ethic, a higher of love towards God in an intimate relationship. And so we know him and we love him. And that is then expressed towards other people. And this is what is meant to bring healing to our world. And so this is the bigger conversation that we're in. And this is the story that gets us there. And so, man, I have so enjoyed <laughs> Um, this time discussing these topics with you guys. And I'm looking forward to next week when we look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther and questions from those books. And then we'll jump into Job the following week. Um, it's going to be exciting. So I uh, already got some great questions about fasting, which I cannot wait to talk about because uh, there's a lot of disagreement about fasting, the role of fasting, what that looks like as a spiritual discipline today and so on. And so we're going to see how that functioned in the Old Testament and what Jesus had to say about it. And uh, so that's something to whet your appetite for next week. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to the next broadcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.